You're listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jeffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejeffrey.org. So let's look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is a firstborn son kind of a thing here. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they were to travel to Jerusalem and make an offering. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. And you'll see this theme come up, but it'll be something we'll talk about today a little bit, this waiting, you see that? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, here, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Fascinating verse. Simeon was told he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then for the third time it mentions the Spirit, verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, which is also reminding us for the multiple times, they're following the law, they're following the law. Verse 28, it says, and he took him up in his arms. So Simeon takes him up in his arms and blessed God and said this. And this is the nuke Dimittis. Verse 29, it says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And verse 33 says, and his father and mother marveled at what was just said about him. I mean, you can imagine Simeon coming on, holding your child and prophesying these great things over this child. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them, Mary and Joseph, and said to Mary his mother, specific words here, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Then he gives a curious phrase directly to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And after Simeon says this, it says in verse 36, that there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then she was uh, as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And then at that moment, while this is all going on with Simeon, it says this in verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, to all who were waiting, there's that word again, waiting for the redemption of Israel, uh, sorry, of Jerusalem. And then verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, there it is again, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And then the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day as has been already lifted up to you. We have praised your holy name. We have given thanks for the things that you have done for us. We have praised you, God, for your provision for the team that was able to visit and minister to Ronnie and Tandy and the Nicaraguan people. We thank you for safety there. God, we know even in this time, many of our church family are traveling. God, we pray for traveling mercies. You'd give safety to the different families that are away and on vacation. Lord, bring them safely home to us. Lord, we thank you for this holiday season, this time of remembrance where we, where we celebrate, we, we give gifts, we, we have great meals and feasts and time together and fellowship. God, we're thankful for this pause, this time. And we're also thankful, God, for this day, your Lord's Day, New Year's Eve. We look back, God, and we think of all that you have provided for us. God, I continue, continue to build us on this firm foundation. 
Continue to preserve us and direct our future. We don't know what tomorrow may hold. We do not and cannot predict, God, but God, you do. And we look to you and we're thankful for all that you've done, all that you will continue to do. Thankful for this church and these people, all the lives and the very souls that are represented in this community. Continue to build your church. Continue to sustain us in your grace and your mercy. Thank you, God, that we have this opportunity to open up your word, to meditate upon your truths. God, I pray that this would not be, as we pray very often here, but that this would not be a mere intellectual exercise, God, but today would be a transformative experience for our very souls. That our spirit would be kindled to one another around us. That your word would unite us together and that it would form and shape us like a jar of clay is formed and shaped into a vessel for your use. I pray God today would be one of those moments that your word would actually shape us through your spirit that is transforming us, that is sanctifying us even in this moment. And so we pray to that end and ask God that you would bless this service in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You noticed in Luke 2 here, the different times where it mentioned this aspect of waiting. And I think it's fitting that we come to Simeon's song in that so much of what he's praying for is this final waiting time. Simeon and Anna had been waiting a long time. And for you, some of my kids are here in the front. Some of your kids are here in the service even with us today. And you know what it's like waiting for Christmas to finally come. You know, it's finally waiting for that day. Some of you, or even me, as like just a giant child myself, right? We are all waiting for Christmas to come. And if we're honest, some of us might still be waiting for those Christmas presents to arrive. You're still waiting for that moment to come down, running down the stairs and see those Christmas presents under the tree. And for us as parents, perhaps maybe it's just watching our kids open up those presents that we've spent so much time uh, preparing for and seeing. And it is a blast in our household with three kids under the age of seven, all just running down to the tree and so excited and then asking me every five minutes, can we open the gifts now? Can we open the gifts now? Because our household, I don't know about yours, I think I've mentioned this before, ours isn't like the movies where they always run down and everybody just mass opens their gifts all at one time and it's complete chaos. Um, we, you know, pass out the gifts and everybody takes turns even though it little, can be a little hard uh, when Judson's down there opening the gifts ahead of time and all these kinds of things, but my kids were pretty excited to give me a special gift this, uh, this Christmas time, um, and they're looking at me right now, and they, they were very excited, overly excited for this one gift that they wanted me to open, and I got the hint that something was going on, and uh, so Christmas came, they, they finally were sitting around, and uh, they divvied up all the gifts, and you guys were very clear that I was supposed to open one gift first, right? There was one gift that I was supposed to open before any other gifts. And uh, they were all staring at me when it came to my turn. The gift was sitting on my lap, and uh, I felt the gift. It was a little soft, and so I sensed something was up. Um, but it was a large gift, and you were very clear that I had to open this before anything gift, and everyone was watching me. And as I started to open this gift, and I peeled back the layers, I started to get the sense. Taylor was over there in the corner, just like so excited to watch me open this gift. And as I peeled back the Christmas paper, the wrapping paper, I discovered it was a large package of toilet paper, okay? And so it wasn't the gift that I had in my mind that I was going to receive at that time or as to why everyone was so excited that I was about to open the best gift ever. And uh, they were so, and Charlie was just cackling with laughter, the fact that we gave dad toilet paper for Christmas. <laughs> the funniest thing ever, but it really, really was pretty funny. And then I realized, I was thinking in the back of my head that I was like, it, this, this isn't 2020, because if it was, that gift of toilet paper would have been awesome, actually. Do you remember when toilet paper was like a bartering chip where it was so like rare to find that you were like struck gold? I can remember when I went to Ocean State or something and I came home with like 64 rolls of toilet paper and I came in the door like I had just provided the bacon for the household for the entire year. And oh, it was just hilarious. So it's not 2020. Toilet paper is just, you know, whatever it is nowadays. But um, I did have that feeling, that sense of finally coming to that 
that moment where you can open up the gift that you've been eagerly anticipating. And as my kids have been eagerly anticipating me for, to open this gift. Because today we're talking about someone, Simeon, and Anna in particular as well. But Simeon, as we focus on him, who has literally, you could say, been waiting years and years and years and years to open this amazing gift. In fact, God has promised Simeon that he was going to receive a gift, unlike any other gift. And he would open this gift, and, when he, and he would not die until he opened this gift. And of course, the gift is not necessarily a present of sorts, but it is Christmassy in the sense that it is the birth of Jesus Christ. That Simeon was told by God through the Holy Spirit that he would see his Savior face to face, and he would not see death until he saw the face of God. It's an extraordinary prophecy and statement. Simeon, I think, is not one that we maybe focus on as much during this Christmas season, but he is one that lived his life with expectant hope. He lived year after year. We're not actually told as to how long he had been waiting, but the implication is that it had been a long time that he and Anna both anticipated waiting and waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem, implying that the comfort and the salvation of his people and his nation and the world was going to come, but he didn't know exactly when that day would be. Anna, we're told, was waiting expectantly she had been, it says in the text that she had been married for seven years when then her husband died. And the text is not necessarily clear as to whether she was 84 years old at this moment or whether she had been a widow for 84 years. Either one is quite incredible. That she had not lived a life of bitterness and anger against God for taking her husband at a young age, but rather that she had lived a faithful life in saying that her devotion to God was well known among the people, that she would fast and pray, she would be in the temple worshiping and, and, and speaking and, and praising God night and day. This was her regular lifestyle. Day in and day out, worshiping God, looking and waiting for the consolation and the salvation of her people. You can, you can imagine that. This year, we stumbled upon a book. I'm not sure, a kid's book. We were reading it with uh, Judson, I think it was. But it's this, I think it's called, if I recall, it's Elmo's Saves Christmas, I think it is. Where the book is, and some of you are like, where is he going with this? Okay. Um, Elmo Saves Christmas. And I, if I recall, it's not necessarily that Elmo saves Christmas. He actually ends up messing up Christmas and then just wishing that Christmas goes back to the way it was. Because Elmo wishes that it would be Christmas Day every single day. Is that how the book goes? Remember, he, yeah, the, the wish comes true and it is... It's Christmas morning every single day, and he realizes that's actually not the greatest idea ever. It gets really old really quickly. And so then I was thinking, what it, for Simeon, it wasn't necessarily that it was Christmas day every day, but that he didn't really know when his Christmas day would come. That Simeon was living a life of faith and hope and expectancy to see this present revealed to him, and it was as if Simeon and Anna would wake up each and every day with eager anticipation that today could be Christmas Day for them, you could say. That today might be the day, maybe it's June 1st or January 1st or uh, December 1st, that Christmas maybe wouldn't come on December 25th, but for them, that promise that they were going to receive this amazing gift, that they would see the salvation of their people happen before they die, that every day became that possibility of a Christmas Day. That every time they woke up, they saw this eager, with eager anticipation that today might be the day when I received the promise of God. And maybe, perhaps, we're not told, but I can surmise that maybe there were days when they doubted if God's promise would actually come to fruition. Maybe there were days where they struggled to believe what God had told them, that it was another day, another ordinary day when that promise was not fulfilled. Anna is in her 80s. Maybe perhaps she's even 100 years old, depending on how we look at it. But this text is saying that they were eagerly awaiting the promise that they knew would take place. And I wonder if sometimes we find ourselves in that situation. I think the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New, and particularly we today, we are also, you could say, the church of God is really a people of waiting, 
in the Old Testament waiting for thousands of years for this Messiah to come. But now the Messiah has come and we find ourselves today in a place of waiting, waiting for the second advent. When the end, if you remember at the call to worship that uh, Lars read at the very beginning, he read the very last verses of the Bible. In Revelation 22, it ends, the Bible ends with saying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come soon. Jesus says, I am coming soon. We wait for that day. They waited and we wait today. It is yet not waiting without hope, but waiting in peace with God, knowing that his promises that he promised to uh, fulfill have come true. He did come. And that gives us hope in for tomorrow and hope that the promises that he continues to give will come true one day. And so it is one of those things that we look back on our year and we look back on this New Year's Eve and maybe perhaps we do think to ourselves, there is a lot of things we're still waiting to happen. Perhaps maybe 2023 did not turn out the way that you expected it to turn out. That you went in, you can remember yourself on this day in 2022 And you were waiting for all of these things to happen and all of these things to take place. Maybe perhaps today where you find yourself maybe in the same place. None of those things took place and perhaps maybe it didn't go the way that you expected it to go. That can be a really hard thing sometimes. When we find ourselves in a place of waiting, perhaps even on the precipice of a place of doubt, can I really trust God with this next year? Can I really follow him and the promises that he said he would give? That he, yes, we we sing that we stand on a firm foundation. He's the cornerstone and he will never leave us nor forsake us. but, But there are days when it surely feels like that. There are days when we might be like a Simeon or Anna waiting for years and years to see God's promises come to fruition. And we're not sure if they ever will. But that is why we come to the word of God because it instructs our feelings, does it not? That we may feel a certain way, but we find ourselves being shaped and formed by God's promises that he has been faithful in the past and he will continue to be faithful in the future. He has established a firm foundation And that firm foundation, he is building it today and he is constructing his church and he will continue to do that until the day he returns. And so we we know that there are senses and feelings and confusions and emotions that we feel and none of those things are wrong. But we find ourselves grasping for something solid to hold onto and we experience the truth and the solidity of God's word and his spirit instructs us to say yes, I believe I believe and I trust you, Lord. And so what I want us to do is just kind of walk through this storyline a little bit and just look at these characters. I want us to look at Mary and Joseph just briefly, but then look at the words that Simeon gives to Jesus upon Jesus' life here, that he holds the baby Jesus in his arms, and then the, the words that Simeon gives to Mary and what that means for us today. And so we look at this timeline. Obviously, last week, we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Then there would have been this time of of circumcision eight days after he was born. We we find also now that he's being presented at the the temple, would have likely taken place somewhere, depending on how you look at it, a month or two after his birth, that Mary and Joseph would go to uh, the temple to go through this rite of purification and they would offer a, a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And so this was a, a thing that every uh, Jewish family would do. They were going through following this. And then they presented Jesus as their firstborn son to dedicate him to the service of the Lord, to dedicate him in the temple before the priests and before God. And so there's this almost ordinary sense that we get here. That it begins in verse 22, and we're reading something, and it reminds us that Mary and Joseph are following the law. They are a pious couple. You could say their piety is being displayed here, and that they are walking in obedience to the law of the Lord. And you say, well, that's not really anything fantastical to note of, and I think that's kind of the point. The point is that they were living an ordinary, faithful life as a Jewish family that we see them obeying the customs and the law. 
We see them going through the purification ceremony, the offering these uh, sacrifices here to the temple. And the fascinating part of this, though, is the irony that is kind of behind it all. The fact that they're offering, as it would be said, potentially a lamb or um, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, and they offer these things And they're following the law and they're going through the law of Moses into what has been required of these people according to Leviticus. And yet the very lamb of God is being held in Mary's arms. There's something just almost ironic and incredibly challenging us for us to grasp that Jesus himself would submit himself under the law. And we we know that song. It's so well known. We sing it at Christmas time. Mary, did you know, right? But that line that always hits me in that song, whether you like it or not, but this, this song, it, it says, this child you'll soon deliver, will soon deliver you. The, the child that Mary holds, though she is operating in obedience and honor to God as they follow and they offer sacrifice, they go to the temple, they go through the rite and the process according to God's law, Yet she is holding the very answer to her need for a savior. The child that she will soon deliver, will soon deliver you. What an incredible statement. And so we see that obedience. We also see not only her, their piety, but also their poverty. Right? That they were not, as it is described, a wealthy family with opulence. But rather, it's mentioned not that a lamb was something that they were offering, but rather a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And according to Leviticus 12, this is something that the purification must happen uh, for a male child. And they were to offer a burnt offering, turtle dove, young pigeon, or for the sin offering. They would purchase these animals on their way to the temple. There would be places often outside of the temple where they were to purchase uh, turtle doves, depending on their uh, affluence, whether they could support and purchase a young lamb to be offered. Uh, there would be purchase. Jesus eventually cast out the money changers for those uh, selling of those goods had moved into the very center of the temple area. And so he cast them out for that's not where they're to take place. But we see in Leviticus that if she cannot afford a lamb, it says, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. What an incredible, incredible statement. She follows this, yes. And yet one day that priest that she is going to, there will be a high priest, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so her parents were likely not well off or wealthy, but probably not poor either. It was, you could say, if I even hesitate to use the word, but they were ordinary in some ways. I think that's purposeful. In fact, we don't hear much of anything about Jesus' growing up years. There's a a story here and there about him teaching and getting lost and they travel to the temple and and where is Jesus, where is he? And they go back and he's in the temple teaching. But other than that, there's almost nothing we hear about his young years all the way till he's in his 30s when he starts his public ministry. And to me, I've always like, I want to know what was it like to like live with Jesus on a regular basis? Did his, you know, brothers, all these kinds of things. We don't know about it. And, And to me, it's, it's telling us this beauty of God's mercy that he lived an ordinary life. He woke up and went to work. <laughs> he, he had to sleep and he ate food and he lived in a, in a community and was a son to Mary and Joseph. And it's just this ordinariness, a pretty normal and average life. And that is purposeful in that Jesus is able to sympathize with you and me. He did not live aloof and separated, but just like one of us, a human being. An incredible thing that God would come in such an extraordinary way from heaven to be an earth and to live for an ordinary life. And yet his mission, his reason for coming, was not ordinary. It was extraordinary. He had an extraordinary mission. That Jesus came in an extraordinary way. He would be the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices and offerings once and for all. And this is the hope that everyone's longing for. The hope that salvation would come. That our sins would be paid for once and for all. That we would be redeemed and rescued from this curse of sin and death that every human being faces. 
And Simeon is hoping for that as he says, the consolation of Israel. As Anna says, the redemption of Jerusalem. Both a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for the people of Israel. This is the waiting, the waiting, the waiting, the waiting, the waiting. Years, centuries, and centuries of waiting. And then we see this exploding off the pages of scripture in Luke 1 and 2, this extraordinary birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Then Simeon steps onto the scene here in Luke 2. And Simeon is a unique character. He's, he's, it says the word actually specifically designates him as a righteous man, and he is devout. And it is very clear with three specific instances that this man is full of the Holy Spirit. Three times it mentions that the Holy Spirit was upon him, was with him, and he came in the Holy Spirit. That this is specific and important, that Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, does not just spout out some words that he is saying about a child that he meets, but rather that the very word of God flows through Simeon, and as a prophet, he speaks the word of God, declaring truth to the people that are there in that place about the Messiah, this child that he holds in his arms. The Spirit of God speaks through Simeon. And Simeon had been living with this incredible promise that he had been giving, a promise that he would not die until he saw the Christ. He'd been living in a perpetual state of anticipation and waiting, knowing in his lifetime the Messiah would come. And what a day that would be, right? Waiting for the consolation. This word consolation is probably not a word that you and I use very often today. And what exactly does that mean? The word consolation, you could think of it like comfort. The word comfort, maybe perhaps someone consoles you. A child, one of my child is crying, they run to mom, not me, right? And they run to mom and mom consoles them, right? And so when they are consoled, they find comfort, The comfort also gives a sense of God as our comforter. For the word of God tells us that Jesus is going to ascend to heaven and who will he leave to be with his people? He's not gonna leave you alone. In fact, it's better that I leave so that I will send the helper and the comforter. The comforter, this paraclete is the Greek word. Here we see the consolation is the word paraclesis. It's this idea of God as our comfort or a very savior to be with us and console us and comfort us and save us and give us the peace that we are looking for for our souls at a period of unrest. And the peace that passes all understanding is this comfort that God gives in the terms of peace and rescue, salvation, and life. You can say it all bundled up in that. And so Simeon does this, and he says the verse 29, he takes baby Jesus into his arms. I mean, I'm hoping he knew Mary or something. It does seem like perhaps it was an awkward situation at first as to someone whom she didn't know just scoops up baby Jesus in her arms. Um, And yet this tender image that we see is just so extraordinary. I'm holding this little infant child, this little perhaps still wrapped in these swaddling clothes, bundled up, this little baby. And the incredible ordinary image that that is, the point that we have all done that held a little helpless baby in our arms, and yet there is something extraordinary about this baby that is being held by Simeon, and it is highlighted in the fact of what he says. Now, through church tradition, these words have become well-known, famous, have been sung for years and centuries and centuries, the new Dimittis. The new Dimittis is the first words in the Latin Vulgate for these words in verse 29, where it says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This is a phrase you'll often hear, uh, perhaps on tombstones, perhaps in a uh, funeral service even, as it is described as now is the time when this person is departing in peace. It can even be traced somewhat to the storyline of the idea of rest in peace. You know, R-I-P, this rest in peace, or I think in Latin, it's something like requisite in passe or something. I didn't take Latin, but something like that. And, and so Simeon is saying, now I can depart in peace. Now my soul can find the rest that it longs for. For I have both, yes, seen the promise of God fulfilled to me, but I have also experienced a peace that God's promises are fulfilled, but now my Savior is here, and I know I can rest. 
And so this is a popular phrase. You could even, I guess you could say today, we even think about these ideas of bucket lists, right? Where we've got to do something before we die, before we kick the bucket, right? And so it's got to f- check off those lists. We've, before we can rest in peace, we've got to visit the Grand Canyon. Or before we can rest in peace, we've got to swim at Grand Cayman, right? And so whatever those two things are, or maybe it's skydiving, or whatever your bucket list is. For Simeon, his bucket list had one thing on it. Before he was going to die and kick the bucket, he had to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It's an extraordinary thing to consider. And yet, I think in some manner and in some way, we can liken that to ourselves. And that is that not the same for us? That if your soul is truly going to find the rest and the peace that it longs for, you've got to see your Savior face to face. And you're like, well, Jesus isn't sitting among us. How is it that I see him face to face? How is that actually possible? How is it that your soul can actually find peace with God? That's probably a question that I think every person who's walked on this planet has asked at one point. How can I find rest for my soul? I've done a lot of funerals. I've sat, I've sat at the bedside of many people and I've, I've been there when people breathe their last breaths, when they are, when they are potentially wrestling with that very question. Rest in peace. And perhaps for you today, you may echo some of those same sentiments within your own soul. Is it possible that you would find yourself on what we would say the proverbial deathbed and you would find yourself breathing your last breath and that you could say with Simeon, now I can depart in peace because my soul is at rest and at peace with God. Because the mediator of Jesus Christ, the sole mediator between God and man, is the one who holds me in his hands. And I've done those funerals where there is a sense, there is, there is a sense of that person who has peace and there is something palpable about it. I can't describe it. Perhaps you know what I'm saying. But there is something palpable about someone who maybe perhaps can no longer communicate to you for the state that they find themselves in and yet you know that they are at rest. That they are peaceful. That they are waiting for that moment when the Lord just simply calls them home. And the funeral service is something of a joyous occasion. The funeral service is something in which there is a celebration. There is this mixture of sadness at the loss and yet this expectant hope because we know we'll see them again. And that is something that as your pastor, I desire for you to have even now. To not wait for 20 years and 40 years when you need to get right with God, but rather right now because you have no idea what 2024 will bring forth. I do not know. Many of you are sitting in places right now where you would never have guessed that you would have experienced what it is that you went through in 2023. And so to always say, I'll push it off for later. I'll get my soul right with God later. Rather, to actually, through the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves so that we can actually see salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says this, for what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you didn't catch that. That God has shown out of the darkness and in our dark hearts, he has shown his light of revelation and truth to awaken us, to enlighten us, so that we can behold the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That in some way, yes, you could say that we see Jesus face to face through our faith and through our eyes of faith and the hope that we know what he says is true and that we believe in him. We have seen his promises fulfilled and we know he's coming again. This is what it means to depart in peace because we are at peace with God. We've seen our savior face to face and yes, one day in heaven upon the renewal and the regeneration of all things, we will be resurrected bodily and we will be with the Lord forever as we will dwell with him. 
And so that's kind of what Simeon is saying here. I'm departing in peace. Why? Because in verse 30 of Luke 2, my eyes have seen your salvation. The salvation that he looks in the very eyes. It's as if he's looking into the eyes of God as he holds baby Jesus there. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. What an incredible statement from Simeon. And then he says, not just my salvation for me, but for all peoples. Look at verse 31. God has prepared this salvation for everyone. For God so loved the world, right? And then for all peoples, but in particular, verse 32, that this light would go off in our hearts and in our minds, but that this light would be a revelation to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? It's you and me, right? We're grateful for that. Because as we read the Old Testament, we follow the storyline of the Jewish people. We follow the story of the Israelite nation. And we're following the Jewish people because of verse 32. It says, they will be a, a glory for the people of Israel. The people of Israel can now glory because the Messiah was Jewish. He came and was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He was crucified outside Jerusalem in that place. He lived and walked in the region of Galilee. He lived and submitted himself under the Mosaic law. The people of Israel delivered the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And it's in that place and in that location in time and history And so for the people of Israel, this is a glory. This should be a glory. And for us as the church, as we join together, it is our glory as well. But we are grateful that that has not come just to save one nation, but for Gentiles all over the world to see the light of salvation. That Jesus' ordinary upbringing, his extraordinary mission in coming to earth is what we are longing for, this need to have rest for our souls. When we put our faith in Jesus, we behold the face of God. We receive comfort, consolation, redemption, salvation, and rest. And yet the way that Jesus does this is maybe not the one the way that we would expect. Because Simeon is about to share a few rather strange words, especially to a new mom like Mary. This is not something I have ever said to a new mom as they have a new baby that they're holding in in their hands. And yet, if you notice in verse 34 and 35, Simeon says, as he now referenced, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also. Again, kind of a strange statement, right? Not something I always recommend sharing with a young mom. But is this is read, if I read it in the NLT, it might help be helpful. The NLT says this, and then Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God and yet many will oppose him. Is that not what Jesus really is? And he is in some ways a polarizing figure. There is a certain polarization about Jesus. There is something about Christianity and in particular the message of the cross that offends people that you could say is offensive. In fact, Paul speaks about this, the offense of the cross. Jesus wasn't just some like, (laughs) I know it's strange, Jesus wasn't some kind of like peace and love kind of hippie, just like, you know, do whatever you want, just do what feels right to you, like everybody, yeah, whatever man, right? Sometimes we like to depict him like that, like the long hair kind of guy, just whatever, dude, peace, man, right? It's like, it's so contrary to what Jesus comes and clearly sets, as he has said, I've come to bring this sword that will divide between families, between those who pursue me and follow me with their lives, and those who reject me. And so there is certainty today, even as I preach, even as you hear the word of God preach, that there are times that you come to hope that you will be offended. And I know in today's culture, like, how dare you offend me, right? It's not that my hope, it's not that as a preacher, I particularly offend you, but that the word of God offends you. Because the word of God offends our sincerest heart's belief that we don't need a savior. I'm good enough to save myself. I don't need no king or God telling me what to do. Don't you know who I am? That's what we all think inside of us, right? And the word of God says that you are a sinner and in need of a savior. And at its very core level, there is Jesus Christ coming to earth. And the very reason that he comes is to die on a cross for you and for me. And at some level, that is offensive. And yet, if we are willing to humble ourselves under that cross, we find peace and salvation. 
Tim Keller says this. He says, both secular and church celebrations of Christmas often focus entirely on the sweetness and light. Not that those things are wrong in Christmas, but that they are all about how the coming of Christ means peace on earth. And it certainly does. As we looked at even last week, the angels sing, peace on earth. But it's not that simple. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body if it has a tumor in it? C.S. Lewis talks about this, I think, in his Grief Observed, I believe. And he says this, a surgeon spills your blood, cuts you open, because that is your only path to health. How does a therapist help a downcast, depressed person? Often she does it by bringing up the past, getting the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. The surgeon and the therapist often have to make you feel worse before you can ever feel better. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus goes as far to say, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. And yet he quickly goes on to show that he does not mean that this is intending to incite violence, for that was the exact opposite of what he's communicating. Rather, he means that he is there to call allegiance. He brings conflict, conflict among people and within people. Just like any peacemaker who has ever lived, Jesus makes people mad, and he often causes struggle and strife, yet this is the way his peace comes. That Jesus comes as a signpost, you can even see him as a signpost on the cross. He hangs on the cross as a signpost, and there must be a point in your life when you come to that cross, and you make a decision to follow him and bow, or to go another direction and reject him. He is either your Lord, or you could say for Jesus as a polarizing figure, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He is either one of the three. And so this signpost is offensive to some, for they see that cross, they see Jesus, they see God on high, and they don't want anything to do with it, because that means a humble admittance that I am not God, and I am not the king, and I have to submit my life to someone else. So that is what is meant in this phrase when there will be a rising and falling. As Mary in her Magnificat, there will be some who are thinking they're proud and rich and powerful, they will be humbled and brought low. And those who are humble will be exalted. And so that is the idea. And this is a sign that is opposed. It's a polarizing figure. It is like magnets that polarize one another. In fact, for Christmas, we had this little silly game that we got. It's just simply magnets and a string. Very easy. And there's 10 magnets that you have. And you're supposed to place the magnets, take turns by placing the magnets within this little circle of string. And it's easy at the beginning because none of the magnets stick together. But as you get and you start filling them up, you, you then begin to delicately try to place your magnets without them sticking to another magnet. And yet there are times when I remember playing that game with my daughter, you, you put the magnet in and it pushes the other magnets away. And then there's other times when you put the magnet in and it attracts other magnets. And then, of course, in the game, you have to take the magnets that stick together and the goal is to get rid of all your magnets. But it's a very simple game, but it, it illustrates a very simple point. The North and South Poles are these polarizing figures that Jesus, in very many ways, is someone who will separate. He will divide. As the sword is not meant to necessarily kill and destroy, but the sword is meant to divide between your allegiance. Keller goes on and he says, the manger of Christmas means that if you live like Jesus and follow him, there won't be room for you in a lot of inns. That in many ways, the world is not uh, accepting of true Christian faith. That there is something offensive about those who are submitting to Jesus and those who do not. And it's not surprising that our culture is growing more and more intolerant to the things of faith and religion and the things that we practice and sing about here today. And the morals that we support from God's word. Jesus said it shouldn't be surprising for us. Because if they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. And so we, we seek to remain faithful and we seek to also be winsome at the same time for Peter reminds us that we're not to just be a jerk for being a jerk's sake, right? That's not in the Bible. But what he says is that he says essentially that we are to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the faith that is within us with gentleness and respect. And so we seek to offer these answers and yet to be bold, bold in the truth because ultimately at the end of the day, this is a matter of life and death. And that's what Jesus uh, is said, is that Jesus has come to make peace. Look at this in verse 34 as we bring this, tie this to a close here. 
Verse 34 and 35, it says that Israel, he'll be a sign that is opposed and that Jesus, uh, um, Simeon says to Mary, verse 35, that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Commentators have debated as to what in the world he's actually saying. But to me, as I've studied and looked at this, I cannot help but think of the crucifixion. And again, maybe not the nicest thing to say to a newborn mom. Hey, you know, your, your son, he's going to grow up. He's going to take, uh, he's going to make a lot of people mad. He's going to be a great guy, but he's going to make a lot of people mad. Also, it's going to be like a sword pierces right through your heart. Okay, have a nice day. Love your baby. Great. All right. You know, it's like, what is he saying? A sword will pierce through your heart? What is he saying to Mary? And I think for me, it's just simply the picture that Mary would be, oh, favored one, as Gabriel said. Mary would, all nations would call her blessed. Mary was favored and blessed and honor her as we should. Yet in John 19, Mary was also going to experience some of the deepest pain anyone would ever experience. And the very heart that she had in some ways is on that cross and she is pierced through. Look at John 19, verse 25. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother as he hung from the cross. And the disciple whom he loved, speaking of John, standing nearby, he said of his mother, woman, behold your son. And then just verses later, John 19, 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And they did not break his, um, his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Then it is written so the scripture would be fulfilled as it says, they will look on him whom side they have pierced. And here we see this depiction of Mary holding baby Jesus and Simeon prophesying that her side will be pierced as well. It's a depiction of spiritually she will face the agonizing sense of this crucifixion scene. That Jesus has come to bring salvation and comfort, but he brings it through a cross. He brings it through shedding of his blood. He comes to make war with sin and death. For Christmas, in many ways, is a declaration of war. (laughs) And Easter becomes the announcement of victory. That Jesus comes on earth not just for nostalgia and Christmas lights and gifts and silent night singings and candles. None of those things are wrong, but he comes to make war on sin and death and to Satan. And then it is in that Easter morning when he rises that he declares victory over it all. And we join in that and we receive that salvation through faith because of his great grace and mercy upon us. Colossians 1 says this, and I'm running out of time. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself in all these things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He makes peace by the blood of the cross. And you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he now reconciled us in his body and flesh by his death. Wow. This is how peace is made. And I think it's important for us to consider to consider this final passage that I want to read in closing. If you look in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, I um, quote this passage a lot. If you are around uh, Hope Fellowship for any length of time, you have no doubt heard these verses in a sermon scattered here and there. For some reason, it always sticks with me. To me, Ephesians two probably ranks in the top five greatest chapters in the Bible. (laughs) But Ephesians 2 gives us hope because it tells us about the peace that Jesus makes through his cross. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 12. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. And it says this, having no hope and without God in the world. We're in a place of darkness. No hope. You're a stranger and an alien. You're not part of this community or this nation. You are separated because of your sin. This is the darkness upon which God shines his light into. See, it says in verse 13, because he doesn't leave us there in the darkness, that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were once far off, but now we're near by what? The blood. For he himself is our peace. He, 
Jesus is our peace, who has been made both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's like he drop kicks the wall, breaks down the wall. That dividing wall of hostility, he breaks it down by abolishing the law and the commandments and the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Jesus makes peace by his offering of himself on the cross. Then verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He kills the hostility. You see the aggressive, conflicting terms? He kills the hostility by offering himself so that others would kill him so that we can experience peace with God. This is the gospel. And he came, and then after that, verse 17, and he came, he preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we now have access in one spirit to the Father. So that this, and here's the good news, everybody. So that you no longer are strangers and aliens. No, you're fellow citizens, you're saints, you're members of the household of God and God's family. And you are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. If you didn't get all of that, it's okay. The whole point here is this idea we were separated and now through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has made peace so that we can no longer be strangers and aliens. We're now citizens and members and one adopted family in and with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And that is what Simeon is preaching about. That is what Simeon is prophesying about. In the Nuke Dimittis, he says, now I can see, I have seen the salvation of God. Now I can lay my soul to rest. Now I can depart in rest. I can lay my soul down in peace. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you look to the cross of Jesus Christ and you trust him to take your sins and to cancel your debt and you believe in him, you too can have that peace. It's not just for an old story, but you too. No matter what 2024 may bring, no matter what it may bring, you can have peace with God. No matter what your life, no matter what comes in front of you, no matter what you're facing tomorrow, if you have peace and rest with God, everything else falls into place. And that's the one thing we're all longing for and the one thing that we find in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you today. We know, Lord, that your word has preached to us already. Your word has spoken to us today. God, I pray that you would help us to stand on that foundation today. We would not look to build a new one or someplace else, but we would look back upon the promises that you have made the promises that you have kept and the promises that you will continue to keep. God, we look to you. We long to see you return one day. Give us the hope and the peace that we are hungering for, longing for, the peace that passes all understanding. God, help us to cast that anxiety upon you because you actually care for us. God, we thank you for the truth that you are the Prince of Peace, that you have made peace by the cross. And we thank you, God, that no matter what happens, we can lay our souls down to peace because we have found peace with you. Thank you, God. You are good to us. We worship your name today in Jesus' name.